I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14 is a wonderful place to be preaching from as we enter the Christmas season because it's a chapter which speaks so much of Christ and yet packed away in the end of this chapter is actually a section which speaks about the fall and rise of the Apostle Peter. Edward Donnelly has written a wonderful little biography about the Apostle Peter in which he says this, Biographies of God's people can be a delightful means of grace. Since we learn by imitation living illustrations of what discipleship means are valuable in enabling us to follow Christ. Yet not all biographies are so helpful. What can be more depressing, for example, than to read of the Christian Superman? He is someone who never fears, falters, or fails. His life seems to be a catalog of prayers answered and triumphs achieved. He is not in trouble as other men. No clouds darken his horizon, and a tranquil smile never leaves his face. As we read of such a paragon, we feel more and more inadequate and discouraged. How could anyone hope to imitate such perfection? Or perhaps discouragement gives way to queasy irritation. The story is too sweet to swallow. He is simply too good to be true. What we are looking for is a portrait of discipleship which will be at the same time inspiring and realistic. We need to read of those who have advanced beyond us in their experience of the Savior and whom, therefore, we can safely follow. Yet they should not be so far beyond us that we cannot reach them. We must be able to identify with them, to feel that they are human beings like ourselves. Above all, we are looking for people who demonstrate in a striking way the character-changing grace of Christ. We can do no better in this regard than to consider the life of Peter. Here is an infallible, spirit-inspired biography, truthful, balanced, and helpful. The record of his relationship with Jesus provides us with a memorable illustration of what real discipleship involves. The Gospels are full of Peter. No other disciple is mentioned so often or has so much to say. No one confesses Christ so boldly or argues with him so persistently. Peter is commended more highly than his companions and apart from Judas, rebuked more stingingly. He is a jumble of contradictions, confused and clear-sighted, exasperating and lovable, boastful and humble, cowardly and courageous. Above all, he comes across 
as an intensely human figure. Of all the twelve, his personality is most vividly drawn so that he stands out from the others, a focus of our attention. We feel that we know Peter and can identify with him both in his strengths and in his weaknesses. This is precisely what God wants us to do. For Peter is not portrayed in such detail simply because he was destined for future leadership. He is a living, breathing example of what it means to follow Christ. He is a prototype of discipleship. We can learn from his mistakes and try to imitate his virtues. I think that's a very fitting introduction for our study of Mark 14, verse 54, and then in verses 66 to 72. You follow along as I read. Verse 54 of chapter 14 says, Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Verse 66, As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. And we, he went out onto the porch, and a rooster crowed. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. Now in order for us to have the sense in our mind of the completeness of this account, because there are other details and other issues with which we need to occupy our minds, I want you just to listen. You don't have to turn in your Bibles, but I want you to listen to the other gospel accounts because all four gospels speak of the denial of Peter. Listen to what Matthew says. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus the Galilean, but he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. When he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. A little later the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Luke also gives us a perspective. He says, Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. 
After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. And then in John 18, the Bible says, Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, but Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold and they were warming themselves. And Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. It's fascinating to put all of those gospel accounts together, isn't it? And to read all of the details of the fall and rise of the Apostle Peter. Now, I want us to look at Mark chapter 14, and I'll supply any of the necessary details from the other Gospels, and I want to do so by giving you two very simple outline points. One, the fall of the Apostle Peter, and secondly, the rise of the Apostle Peter. Very simply stated, we're going to look at the fall of the Apostle Peter by looking at three tests, three genuine tests in order for Peter to affirm his love for Jesus Christ. And I think as we do, we're going to find out a little bit about ourselves and our relationship to Christ also. Let's look at verse 54, and then we'll move over to verses 66 to 71, and we'll look at test number one. Test number one. I might call it this. Test number one for Peter is, of course, that which he failed, and that failed test is a failure to acknowledge his intimacy with Jesus Christ. In other words, there was a grand opportunity for the Apostle Peter to respond not only to the crowd around him, but to Christ also by affirming his intimacy with Christ. He fails 
that test. If you were listening very carefully when I read John's account, Peter was brought into the inner courtyard of the high priest, close enough to apparently be seen by everyone, and close enough even for Peter himself to see all of the proceedings. And that's why Mark 14, 54 says, Peter had followed him at a, at a distance, but then notice, right into the courtyard of the high priest and was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. This is the first opportunity for Peter, after this garden arrest in Gethsemane, to stand up for his Lord. This is an opportunity for him to stand strong, but he doesn't. And in the midst of what no doubt was chaos in several sectors of the city, the first servant girl comes and she examines this man and she accuses him of having been with Jesus. Notice what she says in verse 67. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus the Nazarene. Notice, she doesn't even ask a question. She makes a statement of fact. You were with Jesus the Nazarene. In other words, she is confronting Peter directly. And isn't it ironic that while Jesus is being questioned by the high priest, Peter is standing before another, and he's also being accused. Accused of having an intimacy, a relationship, a knowledge, an understanding, a discipling with Jesus himself. Jesus standing before the Sanhedrin, being accused of blasphemy. Peter standing before the officers in the courtyard, warming himself at the fire, being accused by those outside the arena of Jesus' accusation. And here's an opportunity for Peter to do exactly what Jesus is doing just a few feet away. But he doesn't. Verse 68 says, But he denied it, saying, I neither know or understand what you are talking about. Now, I find tremendous irony in this statement. Why? Because you well know that Peter and these disciples, Judas himself, have spent a couple of years under the tutelage of the Messiah, being discipled and nurtured and taught, instructed in so great a many things. The idea of what the kingdom is like, who God is, who the person of the Son is, what's the future holding for them. All of these things have been taught them over and over and over again. Even this statement in Matthew chapter 7, which I know must be ringing in Peter's ear, not now but later. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Right in the midst of the opportunity for Peter to say, He is my Lord he is my Savior. He is the Messiah. This is what Jesus says to the false teachers in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. To say that someone didn't know someone else goes far beyond what we normally understand by that term. The word know speaks of intimacy. It speaks beyond just mere knowledge. It speaks of the idea of a relationship, of a relationship not just of facts, but of intimacy, a relationship where you've shared so many things, a relationship of friendship, a relationship of love. Jesus tells the false teachers, there is going to come a day when you say to me, Lord, Lord, open the kingdom of heaven to us, and he's going to reply to them, I never had any intimacy with you. I don't know you. And now, in the perfect opportunity for the Apostle Peter to say, I am a disciple of Jesus, he is my master, he is my Lord, and I know him. Peter says, I don't know him. He's failed in acknowledging his intimacy with Christ. And boy, don't you know, again, years later, ringing in Peter's ears will be that statement of Christ, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. At this point, at this moment, at a moment in time, the Apostle Peter is denying Christ before men. Denying Christ. I don't know him. I don't have a relationship of intimacy with him. And do you remember when I read Matthew 26, 70? He denied Christ, it says, before them all. Before everyone who was standing by. The accusations were being hurled at him incessantly, first by the slave girl and then by others. And he's saying, I have no intimacy with Christ. Can you imagine a statement? Can you imagine such a confession? I don't know him. I don't confess him before men. But wait a minute, isn't that precisely what Romans chapter 10 says? That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved? For with the heart a man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. This is a grand opportunity for Peter. I confess Christ. Yes, I'm a Galilean too. Yes, I know him. Why is he not doing this? Why is he denying Christ? Why is he failing to acknowledge the intimacy that he and he alone, along with these 12 others, have the most intimate relationship with Christ. Why? I'll tell you in a word. Sin, and the one who is the purveyor of sin, Satan himself. For do you remember that when Jesus prophesied 
that before the cock crows, that Peter will deny him three times? Do you remember the context in Luke chapter 22 of which that prophecy comes? The very statement of Jesus himself. This is what he says. Listen to this. Luke 22, verses 31 to 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. This is exactly what's happening right here. Satan is at work. He is working as hard as he can to sift Peter like wheat. And guess what? It appears to be working. Peter's denying his Lord. He's denying his Master. He's denying his Savior. Why? Because he is being sifted like wheat. Satan is a formidable foe. Three years of intense discipleship on the part of Jesus himself and Satan has the upper hand. Peter is actually denying his Savior, Jesus Christ, at a, at a most inauspicious moment, at a time when Peter should be the most declarative, he should be the most bold. Edward Donnelly wrote again, the Son of God has himself sought strength and mercy for his disciple. How is that? Because... Jesus didn't just end with saying, Simon, Simon, Satan has sought permission to sift you like wheat. He says this, but I have prayed for you. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail and you, when you once have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Donnelly says what Christ has done, he has interposed his prayers between Peter and the malice of the enemy. Oh, that's so rich. That's so good. Nothing that Satan can do to sift us like wheat will not have the Lord Jesus Christ and his intercessory prayers interposed between ourselves and our weakness and the malice of the enemy. Aren't you so encouraged by that? He says, weak though he is, Peter is shielded by the supplications of Christ on his behalf. That is why his faith will not fail. That is why Christ can speak with such assurance of Peter's future ministry when you have returned to me. Satan's testing will be overruled so that it results in good, not evil. The trial will not destroy Peter, but strengthen him. The Lord will use the devil's sieve to serve a noble purpose. No disciple for, for whom the Savior intercedes can fall to destruction. Oh, praise God. No disciple for whom the Savior intercedes can fall to destruction. He prays like this for every one of his followers. This means that if we truly belong to Christ, none of Satan's attacks can finally overwhelm us. We may well tremble at the thought that we must wrestle against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly realms, but we are not to fear because Jesus is praying for us. Don't you glory in the reality of Hebrews chapter 7 that says that Jesus Christ ascended to the Father is daily making intercession for us. Daily. And that's why in the crucible of a moment and even with a man like Peter 
as weak as he is here, even with the words come tumbling out of his mouth, I deny Christ, it's not over. Aren't you glad of that? Aren't you glad of the fact that when you and I were rejectors of Jesus Christ, when the words came tumbling out of our mouth, I don't know him. I don't have intimacy with him. I reject him that Jesus Christ did not give up on us. Oh, it could have been so. It could have been so with us. It could have been that the first time we rejected Christ, the second time, the hundredth time, the thousandth time that we rejected Christ, that Christ could have said, and righteously so, I give up on you. But he doesn't. He prays for us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for Peter. And even in this moment when Peter doesn't understand what's going on, he doesn't understand the reality of the plan, he doesn't understand that Christ is going to have to go to a cross, he doesn't understand the, the burial of Christ, he certainly doesn't understand the resurrection of Christ, and he no doubt doesn't understand the ascension of Christ, so that Christ, when he's ascended to the Father, says, Peter, I'm still praying for you, that your faith wouldn't fail, and that when you repent, when you return, you'll strengthen your brother. You'll be able to say, men... Ladies, I know what it is to deny Christ. I know what it is to deny the one who's created me, my maker, my savior, my God. I know what it is. And I know that as you have done that, Christ has prayed for you and now he's saved you and now he's calling you with a holy calling and now Jesus is interceding for you and when you experience suffering in this world, you will make it. You'll survive. Boy, what an encouragement to us. What an encouragement to my own heart. Even though for time after time after time, I also have failed to acknowledge intimacy with Christ, and even notwithstanding that rejection, He crashed into my life and gave me savingly to Himself. And now no matter what happens in my Christian life, no matter how weak I am, no matter how vacillating I am, no, no matter how discouraging things seem to me, Christ is interceding for me, praying for me. Could you have a greater prayer partner than the Lord Jesus Christ? Test number two. Let's call this a denial of the claims of Christ. A denial of the claims of Christ. Verse 69 the servant girl saw him. This is a different one. You know that from listening to the other gospel account. This is a, another servant girl, a one who no doubt was keeping the door of the outer courtyard. And she began once more in a series of accusations to say to the bystanders, all of the officers and those who were standing by warming themselves at the fire just a few feet from the person of Christ, this is one of them. But verse 70, again, he denied it. You say, well, what's different in this denial from the first? Notice, it's a different denial because it's a denial of the claims of Christ because Peter is now being accused of being one of them. 
He's accused of being a disciple, not just one who's traveling at a distance, not just one who's seeing Christ from afar off, as many disciples or would-be disciples would have been doing at that point. You remember in John chapter 6, it said there were some disciples who were following Christ, but they weren't real disciples. They were would-be disciples. They were following on such a fringe that it said when he told them this is the demand of discipleship, John 6, 66 said that there were some of them who were not following him anymore. Why? Because the demands were too great. He said, this is what's going to cost you. This is what it's going to be. The Son of Man even has nowhere to lay his own head. This is what it's going to mean putting your hand to the plow and not turning back. This is what it's going to mean to step out in faith to believe and trust God. This is the conflict you're going to have in your home. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. These are all of the demands of discipleship. And some of them heard that message and said, not me, buddy. I'm out of here. I'm not going to respond to that kind of discipleship. If that's what you, as a teacher, are telling me I'm going to have to endure, I'm out. And some of those disciples, sham disciples, false disciples, were not following him anymore. But not Peter. Peter was always on the front row. He was always on the front line. He was there with that knife, ready to die for Christ, cutting off the ear of the high priest's servant Malchus. He's ready to go. At any point, they knew that they could grab him and kill him as well. Peter's right there at the front, and yet in the crucible of time, when the act of confession is here, ready, available, say it, Peter, say it, Peter. He says, I'm not one of them. I'm not one of those disciples. I'm not one of those who would say, as I earlier said, I'm willing to die for you. He's bailing out. He's being charged with being one of the very disciples of the Master, Jesus himself. He's been called to be loyal to his Master, to heed Jesus' words. Jesus had said these things were going to happen to him. He prophesied it. He said, Peter, this is the plan. You other disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be mistreated. I'm going to be arrested, charged, killed, and I will rise again. And I want you to know, he even says in Mark chapter 14, verse 26, I want you to know what's going to happen. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. He told them explicitly, This is what's going to happen. I will die, but I will be raised again. And after I am resurrected from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. You go there. You go to Galilee, and you see whether or not I show up. I'll show up. That's my promise to you. They should have known that. They were to do what he commanded them to do. Go to Galilee. But Peter says, I don't even know him. I don't even know who you're talking about. I'm not one of his. I'm not, I'm not one of his disciples. And he doubts the Lord's word. Why? Because he's only concerned at this point about saving himself. And isn't it, again, so ironic that in the midst of of a time when Peter is all about saving himself, Jesus is a few feet away willing to give up his life. Boy, there's just tremendous contrast here. Jesus is willing to give up his own life by his own initiative to die this ignominious death, and Peter is just a few feet away, and he's not even willing to give up his own skin. That's what Peter's doing. 
In fact, he's even retreating to the outer porch area, according to verse 68. He's, he's retreating completely. It's too hot in there. And it's not just the fire. He's saying, I cannot be associated with this man because if I do, they will immediately put me on trial and they will crucify me as well. No way. And he's fallen away, at least to the extent that he's moving away from the very person of Christ, literally, by his actions and by his words. And all the while, Christ is moving closer to dying for Peter. Isn't that so ironic? You say, well, I can relate to that. So can I. So can I. Christ moves closer to me. I move farther away. He comes to die for me. I'm wanting to save my own skin. And what does the Lord do to pursue Peter? Even, even after this event, and even after his, his death and his burial and his resurrection, Jesus is still pursuing Peter. Because in the only time this is ever mentioned in the Bible, the only gospel account in Mark chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus says, but go. This is after his resurrection. But go. This is the angel. Tell his disciples and Peter. Oh, I just love that. It's the only time this is mentioned. He says, go tell the disciples, does the angel, that Jesus has arisen and go tell them and Peter. Singles him out. Why? Because he wants Peter to know the message, I have been raised from the dead and you should be in Galilee where I told you to be. He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. In other words, you better go there. Go. Go to Galilee. And by the way, tell Peter. Because you know, by this time, Peter's still not convinced. Still is unaware. Still is unsure. I mean, he ran himself to the tomb, didn't he? It says he ran to the tomb. John was obviously quicker and more athletic than he was. Because it said John was arriving there faster. Peter walks in that tomb. He sees those clothing items. Jesus' body is gone. He knows something's happened. He's had the other data from the women. He knows that they've told him, an angel told me this. He's being told this at this point. Jesus himself has already appeared to Peter. And by the time of John 21, when all of this wraps up, he will have appeared to Peter three times in his post resurrection body and says Peter do you still not affirm who I am and what I'm doing Peter and that's of course when he questions him do you love me do you love me do you love me and even there Peter is unsure he says Lord you you know that I love you and when it comes time for Peter to melt into the arms of Christ and say, yes, Lord, I doubted you all the way back in the garden. I doubted you at the arrest of your own life and the, and the absolute idiocy of the charges against you that were, that were perpetrated falsely. They're not true. I doubted you all of that time. I walked into the very room of your death and I saw that you were gone. I, were, I was told by the angels through the women, I've heard all of this. You've appeared to me three times. You're now coming to me in John 21. You've made me breakfast. You've told the disciples, I am here for you. And when it appears as though 
Peter's at the point of breaking, at the point of repentance. Jesus tells John something, and Peter says, well, now, wait a minute, I have another question. And Jesus, of course, says in a curt tone to Peter, Peter, that's none of your concern. If he is alive until the end of time, that's no concern of you. You do what I told you to do. Peter has a lot to learn. Peter has a lot to learn. But you know what? He learns it. I mean, one thing you can say about Peter is this. He may have been long on immaturity, but when he had it, he had it, and he had it for good. Because when he preaches there in Acts 2, he preaches like a fireball. The Holy Spirit had descended on Peter's life. He was bold. And when you look all the way over at Acts chapter 4, you know what Peter's life is like. You know that he's been transformed. He finally does understand. They were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees came up to them. This is amazing. This is the very group for which Peter had denied Christ in front of. Being greatly disturbed, these Sanhedrin people, these Sadducees, the temple guard, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Isn't that amazing? And on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. I mean, this crowd is back again. I mean, they thought they had done away with this Jesus movement by killing Christ. They thought it was all done. They thought that the sect of the way, Christianity, was out of the picture, and now they have to return again because Christians keep popping up all over the place. 5,000 of them. On the next day, according to verse 5, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas, the high priest, was there. You remember the father-in-law of Caiaphas and Caiaphas himself and John, and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. They have to show up again. Here, here's this uprising again. We thought we dealt with it when we killed Christ. When they had placed them in the center, just like Christ placed him right in the center. What is he going to do? Is he going to deny Christ again? Is he going to say, I don't know the man? No. When he learns his lesson, he learns it. They placed them in the center. They began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Oh, and I love verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, controlled, infused, imbibed, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. The boldness of Peter. He finally has it right. And what's the response of this Sanhedrin? What do they think? Verse 13, Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John 
and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, hicks from Galilee. They were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Oh, they were with Jesus. And there was a time, yes, mark it down, no doubt about it, that Peter denied him, didn't want to be with Jesus, would never have affirmed that he'd ever known Jesus. But he's turned around. And now it is recognizable among all that he is a follower of Jesus. And seeing the man who'd been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. Oh, I just love it when the enemy gets it. <laughs> and boy, they said, we don't like this. We don't like it. What shall we do with these men, verse 16? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them, that is through Peter and John, is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Talk about something you cannot deny. Peter may have denied early, but this is not something anybody can deny. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And do you think Peter said, I don't know the man. I deny him. I do not confess Jesus as my Lord. No, but Peter and John, verse 19, answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Folks, I'd call that repentance. Repentance. At one point he said, I don't know the man. At another point he said, I cannot stop from speaking about that man. And that really brings us to test number three. This is the end of verse 70 in Mark 14. And this is probably the most, the most bitter part of the fall of Peter. This is probably the most bitter. We could call it a swearing under oath in rejecting the person of Christ. Not just failing to acknowledge his intimacy with Christ, and not just denying the claims of Christ, but an actual swearing under oath in that he rejects the very person of Christ. Look at the latter part of verse 70. After a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean too. Say, so how did they know that? Well, apparently, in Galilee, they spoke a particular dialect, a particular accent. It was, of course, south of Jerusalem, and so may, maybe they were saying, this guy is a southerner. And maybe they were saying, this guy doesn't talk like we do. Apparently, the Galileans had a bit of a challenge pronouncing some of that rough, guttural language of the Semites, those who were of Semitic descent. And apparently they had a rough time of it. And so when they would go up to Jerusalem, you always went up to Jerusalem because it's higher in altitude, they would go up to Jerusalem and they would be picked out of the crowd very easily because they had a very distinctive accent. Maybe they were not always able to uh, pronounce those guttural letters as some of their other Hebrew brethren were able to do. And so... As Peter is denying, the very accent that he's using, the very language that he grew up with, is apparently the dead giveaway. And so he knows he's caught now. 
he knows there's nothing whatsoever to do but to say, I outright deny Jesus himself, and he even does it by way of a swearing or a curse. That doesn't mean that he was using gutter language. It doesn't mean he was swearing like we talk about swearing. It means that he was saying this, if I'm telling you that Jesus is not a man that I know, he's not someone I'm following, if that's not true, I am to be cursed myself. That's what he's saying. I pronounce an oath, a curse upon my own life that I would die at a moment's notice if I know this man. I'm not a follower of his. He's not using some sort of barroom language to speak against Christ. He's actually saying, I deny that I know Christ. I deny that he's my master. I deny that he's the rabbi that I've been following. And if this is not true, may I myself die at your hands. Pretty strong language. And this is probably his greatest point of failure. He just responds by outright rejecting the person of Christ. You say, is this serious? It is very serious. Because in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, it says this, If anyone does not love the Lord, he is accursed. Peter's saying, I don't love him. I don't know him. And because I'm telling you the truth, I am to be accursed if this is wrong. Boy, that's strong. He's saying, kill me if you found that I've been following Christ. He just sort of trumps the crowd and says, look, I'm, I'm out of here because if you keep me here and keep asking me these questions. I'm going to tell you I don't know him, even by virtue of swearing an oath against myself. You know how bad it is? He even refuses to acknowledge the name of Jesus. Notice what he says. I do not know this man you are talking about. He doesn't even want to talk about Christ by name. He doesn't want to say Jesus. That's pretty bad, isn't it? They have him dead to rights. And even in John's Gospel, it says that one of the relatives of Malchus, the high priest's servant, you would have assumed that the relative would know who Peter is because if he were standing there and knowing that his own relative, Malchus, has his ear cut off with a knife by Peter, you'd pretty much be assured you could recognize that man's face, right? And one of the relatives of Malchus the servant of the high priest, knowing that it's Peter, says, surely you're the one. I saw you in the garden. I saw you with that knife. You cut off the ear of my own relative. Surely you're one of his followers. And that's no doubt why he has to say, curse me to death if I'm not telling you the truth. And this is not just some luscious, lark in the park for Peter who says, I don't know Christ. This goes far deeper than that. And then I think the whole narrative turns because according to Luke's gospel as I read it to you, it says, with the recording of the very words as they come out of Peter's mouth, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Apparently just a few feet away. 
Peter is pronouncing a curse upon himself that he doesn't know Jesus, continual denying. Even the time lag on this passage says in one of the gospel accounts that an hour or so had passed between denials. This is not something that just happened in a few moments. This is happening in hours, beloved. And within hours, Jesus is standing before the whole Sanhedrin and Peter himself standing there just a few feet away. And when the ultimate moment comes, when he has the opportunity to say, I will either die by confessing Christ or you can kill me because I deny him. Jesus was apparently close enough within earshot that when he heard that denial and when that rooster crowed for the final time, Jesus looked square into the eyes of Peter. Edward Donnelly writes, what a look that must have been. More penetrating than a laser beam. More eloquent than 10,000 words. It was a rebuke as the Lord looked beneath the bluster, reflecting in the eyes the awfulness of what Peter was doing. It was a reminder, for Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. He would remember also, perhaps, his fever-stricken mother-in-law, the miracle catch of the fish, the hand that grasped him in the waves. All that had passed between him and the man whom he now claimed he had never known. How would you have responded when you had denied Christ for that third time and when Christ had turned around and penetratingly gazed at you with his laser beam eyes, what would you have thought? What would you have done? What would you have said? Knowing what you had just done. Well, I know one thing I'm thankful for. That wasn't the last thing Jesus did with Peter. But I know this. When that gaze of the eyes of Jesus himself came into Peter's own eyes, he knew it. He knew it. He knew what he'd done. He knew that the prophecy had been fulfilled immediately coming into his mind was that statement of Jesus that before that rooster crows, you will deny me. It's happened even while the words came out of your mouth, Peter, that rooster crowed. You know it. It has happened. You failed me. And boy, if that's all the story was, if that's where we ended it, oh, how devastating that would be for any of us. But as much as I talk about the fall of Peter, I can talk about the rise of Peter. And you know what? It's only contained in a very small fraction of verse 72, but it's there. Do you see it? And he began to weep. That's the rise of Peter. You say, that's it? That's all it is? That's all it was? No, it was much more than that. But here's what the text chooses to exclaim for us. And Peter wept, and he wept bitterly. That's the first sign of repentance. That's the, the first sign that Peter knew what he had done. Right in the moment, as soon as Jesus put his gaze upon Peter, Peter knew at an instant in time 
sinned against the Lord. I've denied him. I've said that he isn't my Lord. But one thing is also true. When Jesus prayed for Peter back in Luke 22, as I told you, he said, when you return, you will strengthen your brothers. That's repentance. That's the word return or turn, epistrepho. That's the word that means repentance. That's the word that's used in many places to speak of a turning, of a conversion, of a repentance, of a replacing in your mind what you did do to what you now know you need to do. It says, when you turn, that's also a prophecy, and that also was fulfilled. Aren't you so glad of that? Aren't you so glad that Jesus says about us, I know that this is what you're all about, I know that this is what you're going to do, but I also know this, this is what you're going to become. This is your repentance, this is your turning, this is your conversion, this is what's going to happen, Peter, and when this happens, you will strengthen your brothers. Oh, he didn't realize it to its fullest extent right there, and it wasn't even until the Holy Spirit came down upon him in power in Acts 2 and Acts 4, and maybe even in later times, maybe even as Peter himself wrote First and Second Peter when he said, when you're suffering, when you're suffering, when you're suffering, you only will suffer for a little while, and then the God of all grace will confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter knew exactly what he was talking about. Oh, Peter, what a... What a fall, but what a rise. What a rise. He did repent. That's the key to it all. He did repent. He did respond. Can we doubt that Christ's look was also a reassurance? In the crisis of his life, with Calvary coming near, he still had time to think about Peter. Was it that the love shining unconquerably from those steady eyes that made the big fisherman cry like a baby? The look of Christ brought Peter to himself. It broke his heart. It turned him from the far country to the painful, happy journey home. Yes, it's painful. Oh, but it's happy. Repentance is always hard, but it's always best. Donnelly says, Jesus still turns and looks at us in our backsliding. We do not deserve it. If he were to avert his face in holy loathing, we could have no complaint. But again and again, when tempted or involved in sin, we feel his eyes upon us. Not literally, but when listening to a sermon or reading a verse of Scripture in the face of a loved one by a startling providence or simply the prompting of an awakened conscience. Somehow we become aware of Christ and are rebuked. We remember that all has been to us, all he has been to us, and all that he has done for us. We are reassured that unworthy though we are, he loves us to the end. His look melts our heart and brings us to repentance. Oh, that's, that's the rise of every genuine Christian. It doesn't matter how far you have fallen. It doesn't matter doesn't minimize the sin, but it doesn't matter how far because His grace is greater than any sin. Just in the providence of God, as we close this morning, I was opening my mail yesterday at my house, and I was sent a letter from a local church here in the U.S., and apparently something I did not know, a very prominent pastor who had apparently been a sweet blessing to his congregation for so many years, had apparently over the last four years by going to a mission state, a station outside of our country and had apparently while he was in a pastorate and also in this foreign place had scandalized the church by adultery and other things. It was found out. Tremendous, tremendous ministry, 
tremendous legacy, great visible spokesman for the cause of Christ, tremendous impact worldwide from this ministry of this church, and yet tremendous sin. And when the church leadership worked through the issues, put this man, their beloved former pastor, on notice of discipline, working with him, seeing his repentance, publicly exposing the sin as it should be exposed, he writes back to his congregation, My dearest brothers and sisters, words cannot be found to express the pain and grief I feel for the pain and hurt I'm causing you by my enormous sins. My sins go over my head. I'm filled with confusion of face. I've sinned so deeply, so extensively against so much light and privilege that my guilt has almost suffocated me. I have betrayed your trust and confidence in me. I've betrayed my high calling. I've robbed you with many others, taking support, the financial help while living in sin. I have complicated my sins by desperate measures to cover them. I've been living a lie for some time now, and in my ugly pride, spinning more and more lies to avoid the shame that the open exposure of my sins would bring. I've shattered the hearts of aging parents. I have for some time now been living contrary to everything I've ever preached. I have made a mockery of a professed zeal for missions and evangelism. I've exhorted you about things I was not doing myself. My sins against my wife are horrific. My sins against you reach to heaven. I have given occasion for the enemies of God to blaspheme. I have sinned against extended family and am now ashamed to them, my in-laws and nieces and nephews and sister and cousins and uncles and aunts. I have brought reproach to distinctive precious doctrine we all love. My sin is, not no, is now known throughout the world. It is my just punishment. You all have every right to be very angry with me. I beg you to forgive me. I beg you to pray for my soul. Wave after wave of guilt and shame sweep over me. Every day and night the precious faces of those who have loved and trusted me flash before me and I see the hurt, the shock, the pain, the deep sense of betrayal in those faces. I expect this process to continue for a long time. Sometimes I wonder if I could ever look at any of you in the face again. My shame is intense. Your pain and hurt is deep and intense. Oh, I beg you again, please forgive me. I love you all so much. You've been such a precious, loving people to me. I ache for what I've done to you. Oh, how I wish I could fix it, but I can't. I've sinned against my faithful pastors. I've lied to them and resisted them. My folly and pride is, in all of this is incalculable. I bless God they pursued me. I bless God they did not leave me to go on in my lies and horribly betrayed their confidence in me. They are good men. I've made them share in my shame. They're faithful men, and I bless God for them. I'm sure I do not begin to know all the hurt and pain I've caused. New revelations of that will come every day. Please forgive all the other ways I may have wronged you without even being sensitive to it because of the wretched spiritual condition I've been in for some time. I'm sure that you were robbed of a true shepherd and his love and concern from the time I first sunk into my sin. For the sins of selfishness and lovelessness and spiritual neglect that I'm sure I was guilty of, I also plead your forgiveness. Pray that the living God would have mercy on my miserable soul and allow me into his heaven. Pray that he would preserve me from returning to sin. Pray that I can live long enough to someday do some little good again in the Christian church. May God give you grace to go on with him despite my sin. Let God be true and every man a liar. My sin has not negated one word of God's truth. 
I pray that the Holy Spirit will console your aching hearts and that someday you can embrace me as a rescued sinner restored by the marvelous grace of God. I'd say that man may very well be on the road to repentance, don't you? The rise is always greater than the fall. Have you repented today? You said no to your sin, yes to Christ. Not denying Him. Not saying no to Him. Not saying that you don't know Him. Not rejecting Him, but embracing Him no matter the cost. That's the Lord's will. And it's the Lord's grace if you repent. It's His gift. Take it. Embrace it now. Let's pray. Father, we know about our fall. It's ever before us. How we lied to you, how we have spurned you. And yet, Lord, you come to us in grace. Even while we deny you, you've died for us. Lord, I pray for anyone here who has not repented of their sin and who now only experiences the fall and not the rise. I pray that they would rise by the gift of repentance and faith and that you would bring them to a place of not denying you, but affirming you, of proclaiming you. We pray that you would bring this to those in our midst who don't have any intimacy with you, who would know in their hearts that they have no saving relationship to you, who've failed, who've fallen, and who need to rise. Father, I pray they would rise. Not by anything they could do, for that will never be any rising to be intimate with you, but only by the gift of grace. And for us who know you now, who've known you for a long time, may this falling of Peter and the rising of Peter give rise to our own soul this very day, that even though we failed, you give us your grace every day. As a phoenix out of the ashes, we can rise, repent, and be intimate with you again. Thank you for bringing this message to us. For Christ's sake. Amen.